Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories sold worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Coming to you from the Sunbury Press studio at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. Today, my guest is Mickey McGuire, the author of Feather White, a 1970s memoir, commercial fishing out of Provincetown and the backwoods counterculture movement in Nova Scotia. A lot to unpack. Mickey, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lawrence. I'm very happy to be here. You know, I got to start with the whole name, Mickey McGuire. So I'm a huge baseball fan. And when <laughs> when I was much, much younger, a long time ago, there was a guy named, well, of course, there was always Mickey Mantle, but that was before my time. But there was Mark McGuire. Right. And so Mark McGuire, his rookie card, I think back with the Olympic card, I don't know what year it was, in the 80s. I remember going around to flea markets and buying them for like a quarter and selling them for 10, 20 bucks a few months later. And so the name McGuire has stuck in my brain ever since. So when your, when your manuscript came, I first thought, oh, is this Mark McGuire? And then I saw <laughs> Mickey McGuire and I thought, oh, maybe it's Mickey Mantle. But uh, there's obviously got to be a baseball connection here. Maybe I'm just crazy. Is there any... Uh, any connection to baseball with the Mickey McGuire uh, thing? Or? No, uh, but if you want to go back to the uh, the original Gaelic, McGuire means son of the brown hair. Okay. Uh, and uh, I was uh, I was named after uh, a cartoon strip that appeared in like the 1920s newspaper. It was called Mickey McGuire, the little tough guy. And uh, Mickey Rooney went on to play him. It was actually Mickey Rooney's, uh, some of his earliest roles. He went on to play him in those uh, 15, 20 minute shorts that would happen before uh, the movies. And uh, and he wore a derby and smoked a cigar. And it's really how his his claim to fame, how he 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 rose to stardom was as Mickey McGuire. So I was named after a cartoon character. So I had something to really live up or down to. Well, hopefully you're a little more than two-dimensional as we get into this interview. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. I hope so. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to I'm going to put a cigar and <laughs> think about a cigar <laughs> and a fedora and talk to Mickey McGuire here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, all right, tough guy. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not so much of a tough guy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Actually, some of your story would uh, um, I'd have to disagree with you for some of the things that happened. Yeah. To you. Well, I had to survive amongst them, so yeah. that was an acquired skill. So let, let's start with um, the scallop boats. You know, um, it seems like you were involved in scallop fishing in the North Atlantic. What what is scallop fishing like? What are you actually doing when you're doing that? I mean, I know you're getting well, shellfish, and I love to eat fishing, scallops. Um, I mean, there's two different kinds of scallops. There's bay scallops, which you know you do in the the back bays, but uh, then there's sea scallops, and you can go, you can steam out 24 hours or 12 hours before you hit the grounds. And basically, what a scalloping operation is is you're dredging the bottom of the ocean floor, and you bring up whatever's whatever's down there scallops, lobsters, halibuts, rocks, pieces of wreck, mud, sand dollars, whatever it is. And your job as a scalloper, once the dredges come up, which, and by the way, it's a very dangerous operation because these dredges are, you know, 12 to 16 foot wide and, and they have a, uh, and it's uh, a metal 
uh, triangle with a chain bag suspended from them. There's one on, on each side, port and starboard side of the vessel. And you haul them back, and they're filled with all this debris. They dump the debris on deck. And your job as a, as a deckhand is t- to clear everything that's not scallop overboard and pick up the scallops and shuck them. And then while you're scup- shucking them, uh, the captain will ring the bell, and it's another haul back 20 minutes or a half an hour later. So you just do this, uh, you know, it seems like for an eternity, uh, you know, because we would go out anywhere from 7 to 14 days, and each one of those days at sea seems like three. So, uh, But that's basically what you're doing. You're scraping the bottom of the ocean and uh, getting rid of rocks and all the other debris and shucking the scallops. Yeah, and be very clear that you were shucking them. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. They're actually quite easy too. You know, most people think, oh, well, you shuck a scallop. It's just as difficult as uh, shucking an oyster, which is, you know, really, you know, it's kind of difficult. But the, the scallop shell has a big wide hole that you stick your knife through, and you can actually do them quite fast. In fact, uh, your worth on a boat is judged by how fast you can shuck scallops. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mickey, you're cracking me up when you're talking about a hole in shucking, but <laughs> with that <laughs> knife. But I don't. This is a family program, so I will stick to just questions about seafood. <laughs> so, uh, so, well, now your way, I'm shucking probably applies to corn. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> so you, uh, <laughs> so like, how old were you when you were doing this work? How old was I when what? When, when you were doing this work, the scallop fishing. Oh, uh, well, I had built my cabin when I was 20. And uh, I needed to find some way to make goodly amounts of money so I could spend goodly amounts of time at the cabin. And uh, a couple of my neighbors in Nova Scotia had told me about apple picking down in North Brookfield, Massachusetts. And, you know, they told me, you know, they could make between 1500 and $2,000 in a couple of weeks picking apples. Uh, when you're living in a log cabin with no utilities and no, no overhead, really, if you show up there with 1500 hours, you, you could live a long time on that. So that was my plan. And uh, I was on my way to pick apples in Brookfield, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, I got a ride from an acquaintance from college who said, I'll take you to North Brookfield, but uh, I want to see Cape Cod National Seashore uh, before. So would you mind going to Cape Cod for a couple of days, and then I'll drop you off at North Brookfield? And I thought, well, geez, this would save me a lot of sticking my thumb out, because that was my my usual mode of transportation. I, I sold my car to my parents when I was 19, and I went out, and I hitchhiked back up to Nova Scotia looking for land. So hitchhiking was my, my way of getting around. But this guy said, I'll take you right there. I said, okay. So, and I wound up running into someone that I had known up in Nova Scotia in Provincetown. Uh, we were at this uh, party in Nova Scotia. We strapped a rack of moose horns to the front grill of his 1950s army truck. And I happened to see this vehicle at a red light just before you turn into Provincetown, Cape Cod. I got out of the car. I ran over and uh, and uh, I said hello to him. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to go pick apples so I can you know, stay a year at the cabin. I said, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm captaining an offshore scallop room. We're leaving for the Nantucket Shoals at midnight. And I said, do you need any help? So that's how I got into it. And of course, you know, once I got on the boat, uh, 
I realized I was kind of in over my head. Uh, and uh, greenhorns are are not the most popular people on the boat. Mm-hmm. And uh, and your your very ignorance is highlighted by just the fact that you don't even know the names of things on the boat. So if you have to ask what a gaff and a gallus is, you are uh, you're even further ostracized. So it was rather difficult. Uh, and I guess, as you'll probably surmise after this interview, I'm, I'm a rather verbose individual, but I had to learn how to keep my mouth shut because that's the worst thing I could do on a boat was to have something to say. Right. So I just kept my mouth shut, my ears open, and tried to learn as quick as I could uh, so that I could survive it. All right, Mickey. Well, before we get too much further, I know the audience. I know I'm asking this in, in my head, so I know the audience is probably thinking, all right. We got this young man, 20 years old, goes to pick apples, ends up on a fishing boat on yeah. a whim. So <laughs> I know how what I did when I was that old, and I know I have kids too. And, you know, so the first thing I'm thinking is, well, did mom and dad know? Uh, was there a phone call? Uh, you're going away for three weeks. I mean, maybe we should back up a little bit and just talk about the family situation. Why Why were you yeah. all gallivanting so. around like this? It's not yeah. typical for a kid. It's almost like you're running away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it was. I was running away. And and it's funny. I do. I remember that phone call to my mom like, like it was yesterday. She dreaded these calls. She got calls from me like that quite often. Uh, well, I I uh I come from a middle-class Irish family, born and raised in Atlantic City, New Jersey. It was a wonderful place to grow up. We were uh, right on the bay and four blocks from the ocean. So my whole life uh, it revolved around salt water. You know, we were we were called bay rats if you lived down near the bay because we were always down at low tide, looking under rocks and you know scavenging, picking things up. We would walk out on the salt water ice in the winter time, which was actually quite dangerous. And of course, during the summer, body surfing and uh, all my jobs revolved around tourism and uh, so on. Uh, but uh, dad was uh, an, an Atlantic City police officer and he had the Irish disease. He was alcoholic mm. and he was not like uh, a beat the wife kind of alcoholic. Uh, he was basically uh, not there. He was a non-participant in the family. Uh, he provided just enough money for us to get by, but anything that might have made us perhaps you know a little more comfortable wound up being poured down his throat or left on the poker table. So that was kind of difficult. But I came out of an environment where there was there was just turmoil and arguing about that all the time. And uh, of course, when I was very young, I had no idea what this was all about. And uh, as I got a little older, uh, I started to realize what was going on. And my immediate reaction was juvenile delinquency. I was getting into all kinds of trouble. Uh, you know, I was uh, vandalism breaking into, you know, there were a lot of summer homes down in uh, Atlantic City and Ventnor. And uh, I started breaking into places in the wintertime and uh, just really getting into trouble. I had tremendous, I had a lot of energy and it was all going into bad stuff. And then I wound up joining the Boy Scouts when I was 11. And uh, our first camping wait, trip wait, wait, was Wait, 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 wait. Hold on one second. You were breaking into places before you were age 11? Say again? Breaking into places? Yeah, you're breaking into places before you were 11? Yes. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I just Trump's wanted to make that yeah. clear because, you know, I wasn't thinking about like a fifth grader <laughs> yeah, breaking I into was. houses. So you were the guy that stole my – no, never mind. <laughs> I was. You want to buy it back? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good there's a statute of limitations on this stuff. All right. So so you're this this uh, middle school <laughs> thief who's this cat burglar out of fifth grade yeah. <laughs> down, uh, down on the co- – all right. So yeah, uh, I was I was really I uh, I well if the Boy Scouts hadn't happened for me I I'd probably be dead or in prison probably mm-hmm. but the the Boy Scouts they they took me uh, our first trip was to this log cabin in the wintertime. and uh, it was the first time I realized that there there could be peace in life I didn't realize that all I knew was that there's turmoil in life and. Uh, uh, there was a moment where we, everyone was sleeping and, and I opened up the window. The snow was coming down, blowing across a frozen lake. The fire was in the fireplace and there was such tranquility there. And I, I, I think I mentioned this in the book. Uh, I actually spoke out loud. I was the only one awake. The whole troop was asleep. But I said to myself, I want this. So, so in my young mind, uh, it was a log cabin was the answer. Uh, uh-huh. It was a peace construct. It was an oasis in the in the uh, the vodka ocean that dictated our existence. And uh, so uh, and of course, in the Boy Scouts, I learned all this energy that was going into destructive things went into things like, you know, uh, learning. That, and I went from setting fires to uh, teaching kids how to build them uh, in the woods, in, you know, campfires. Uh, we, we learned uh, how to build with logs and rope and navigating by the stars and uh, just all kinds of wonderful endeavors. And also the scout laws. And it, it inspired uh, a response from me where I suddenly went from being destructive to trying to be helpful. All right. So my well, dream to build a log cabin actually started when I was 11. And uh, I clung to that for like the eight or nine years before I actually went up and built my land. All right, and Mickey. that became my oasis in my mind, you know. Mickey, let's hold that thought. We're uh, talking to Mickey McGuire, the author of Feather White. We'll be right back. Just released by authors Joe Farrell, Joe Farley, and Lawrence Knorr, Legendary Sports Figures, Volume 1, with biographies of great athletes buried in Pennsylvania and New York, including Babe Ruth, Richie Ashburn, Josh Gibson, Gil Hodges, Arnold Palmer, Joe Paterno, Triple Tiara winner Ruffian, and many more. Available at www.sunburypress.com and wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the Sunbury Press Book Show. We're talking to Mickey McGuire, the author of Feather White, a 1970s memoir, commercial fishing out of Provincetown in the backwoods counterculture movement in Nova Scotia. Uh, Mickey, I know the first segment we were talking about your transformation from 10-year-old cat burglar to Boy Scout. <laughs> and I think it's one of the most fascinating things I've heard in any of my interviews. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm kind of fascinated by it, too. <laughs> yeah. So getting back into that, I, I know you... You know, and when we started, we talked about... So we're kind of jumping around, and I apologize to the audience for that, but this this is fun. Uh, now you're a young man. We're going to go back to your serendipitous, hey, Captain, I'll join the ship right. that night there and all the difficulties. Mm-hmm. So um, at the log cabin bit, had that 
had that desire started to happen at age 20? You, you say you wanted to get money for that. Were you already working on that when yeah, you went with the like, captain? Well, you know, the, the, it was my obsession from age uh, 11 to 19. Then I sold my car to my parents, hitchhiked to Nova Scotia, and I bought six acres of land in Nova Scotia. And uh, in, in Nova Scotia in 1973, it was still, it was still the 60s in the early 70s. And there were a lot of young people, uh, both Canadians and people who left the United States. There was a certain percentage of draft dodgers who went up there or just people like myself who went up there and uh, in search of what I called what we thought was a better way, a simpler way. And it was in the, right in the middle of the, the back to earth movement. Uh, and uh, so there was a, a lot of uh, well, people called us hippies and I I. I beg to differ on that. I liked, we all called ourselves freaks. That's what we were. <laughs> and there were a lot of people up there uh, building cabins, rehabbing barns, uh, farmhouses, growing crops, making candles. Uh, a lot of us were well beyond the power lines, burning kerosene lamps, using outhouses, well, these no days, power. These days, and it was, be, yeah. Yes. These days, you'd be an off the grid prepper. I mean, Say it, again? it sounds like an off the grid prepper these days. <laughs> so <laughs> that's well, yeah, yeah, it, it was. Uh, and I, I was I, I found myself on a road in Nova Scotia where there was eight. Uh, well, actually, seven. And mine was the eighth. Uh, there was eventually eight uh, cabins on that road and six of them were log cabins. And uh, I was the youngster. I was uh, 19 and 20 years old. And the guys who were up there who had built cabins were 25, 26, 27. So these were the these were the guys I looked up to. But everyone was so helpful uh, at teaching me different techniques about building the cabin and living in the woods. And the other the other part of it was the people of Nova Scotia embraced us all. Uh, they I think that they had a respect for us because none of us were afraid of a little work and they opened up uh, uh, their extensive lore on how, how to live, uh, you know, like a la 1889. And uh, so there was this incredible give and take. And I remember being at some of our epic parties on the road and it was not unusual at all to see, you know, uh, Farmers in their 70s attending these parties. It was really uh, just a, a really wonderful thing. So we were uh, forging our better way in the woods back then at that time. Did you realize how uh, how you're basically living like Thoreau and Walden? Well, I had read Walden uh, when I was in college, and uh, I, I knew that. And I, I went to uh, Glassboro State College. Uh, it's now known as Rowan. And uh, I had a, uh, a professor by the name of uh, Dr. Edward Wolf, and he's still with us, by the way. I was just in touch with him a few months ago. And uh, this class, we had to do a paper for it, and I had just come back from building my cabin. So I thought, well, it's silly. I can't write a paper on environmental ethic without talking about what I had just done this summer building a log cabin in Nova Scotia. So I titled it, um, you know, Echoing uh, Thoreau's title. Thoreau's title was Walden, or where I lived and what I lived for. Yep. Uh, and uh, so I just retitled it, and I said, "An environmental ethic, uh, where I'm living and what I'm living for." With apologies to Henry David Thoreau. So he read this thing. I got it back, and he said, "I can't possibly put a grade on this." <laughs> and 
And so he didn't, but I got an A in the class and he wound up coming up to Nova Scotia that summer, the following summer and spent like a week up there with his son, Chris. So it, it really impressed him. You know, and I turned him on to all the, all the, you know, all the different cabins and cottages and different operations, beekeeping, honey making, candle. You know, he was, he was pretty amazed by it. So I have to ask you, I mean, I, I understand the Boy Scouts and, you know, you start to learn some of those skills and the others were probably there to help uh, train you, you know, such a young age, knowing how to build a log cabin and so on. So I, I can, I can imagine you're getting to the point where you've built the cabin. What I can't imagine is, what are you eating? I mean, how do you survive day to day? How are you procuring things? Are you out uh, fishing, picking well, berries? I mean, I mean, yeah. what are you doing? Well, we were n- never that far from a, a supermarket. Like where where the cabin is, uh, you know, there's there's a supermarket nine miles in one direction and 18 miles in another. So you can actually go out and, and buy, you know, groceries and stuff. And at that time when I was building, I was not set up for farming or anything like that because all the effort was going into building the cabin. But what I, what I did, uh, I availed myself of all my neighbor's crops and even right to this day when I visit, uh, you know, if it's like late summer, early fall, neighbors will come up with just bags and bags of produce for me. Uh, people, uh, who hunt will drop roasts off and things like that. And uh, also I did a little hunting myself to supplement, uh, you know, my food. So, uh, you know, it wasn't totally living off the land. It was kind of a hybrid, I would say. So, um, how much time were you at the cabin versus at sea? Like what was the breakdown in a typical year? You mean back then? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, one, once I broke into fishing, uh, I, let's see, I fished on and off for like somewhere between three and a half to four years. Uh, but during one of those times, you know, my goal, my goal was to spend a whole year at the cabin. That's really what I wanted to do. That's what the apple picking was all about. Never made it to the orchard, by the way, never picked an apple in my life that I got paid for. Um, but, um, the idea was to have enough money to spend a long time. So, uh, I broke into fishing in September of 77. Uh, and then I got on a boat called the Bay of Isles in May of 78. And I fished on that boat all summer long and I made thousands of dollars. And uh, when I was done in like late August, I had a, a hundred year old valise that I kept my volumes of poetry and my fishing cash in. And I went up to the cabin in September of 78 with $5,000 in that valise. And I spent 13 months all in one shot at the cabin. So that was, that was uh, the longest I ever spent there. Uh, but then, you know, since I had the income from fishing, it was not unusual at all for me to go up and spend a month, go up, spend three months, uh, two and a half months, you know, that kind of a thing. So I would stay anywhere from, you know, one to three months at a shot. And then there was this one time where I did the 13 months all in, in one shot as well. Wow. So Nova Scotia, obviously a little further north than New Jersey. Certainly a lot further north than, well, maybe a little further north than Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. I'm imagining the winters could get uh, pretty cold. And You were talking before we came on the air about the snow. How, what were winters like there? And, and I'm, I'm sure you were using well, I, wood I think, to heat yourselves. Well, was it what? I'm sorry. 
firewood you were using firewood to heat yeah i i cut all my firewood myself uh they had a deal the mercy paper company which owns tons and tons of land in nova scotia uh at least they did at the time they probably still do uh but you could go on the mercy paper uh paper company land and uh, they would let you cut uh hardwood for four dollars a quart so me and two other fellas uh one of the uh, luke gerligs he was a a blacksmith that I was working for uh, during one summer and one of my neighbors, Joey Ferguson, uh, we teamed up and we went out and we cut over 28 cords of wood ourselves, hauled it all out, hauled it to our places, cut and split it all. And uh, that's how, that was how I got my wood for that 13 months that I spent. And also, you know, I have six acres, so I, I, it wasn't, you know, unusual for me to just cut certain trees here and there and use them as well. Right. But, uh, wow. Uh, you're, you're talking about 28 cords of wood. I mean, I get tired when I split a wagon load <laughs> to pull up to the <laughs> well, you house. Know, you know, it was funny. I was, uh, when I did that, I had, I had, uh, already com- completed, uh, half of my fishing career and I went up and I spent the 13 months up there. So we cut these 28 cords of wood and I thought to myself, you know what? You're you're making enough money in two days fishing. I could have just bought that, but but the difference is, uh, yeah. you know, I can sit here and talk to you about the 28 cords of wood we cut we cut as opposed to the 28 cords of wood we bought. Different story. Yeah, yeah. The other point I wanted to make for the audience was noting the five thousand dollars that you had that got you through 13 months, and that was in the late 70s. So. A lot yes. of talk about inflation these days, and boy, what a difference! Right. Well, by the following, uh, yeah, by the following summer, uh, I did supplement here and there. There was uh, there were some boats that would come in. They had a scallop fleet in Digby, a fish dragging fleet as well. Digby, it's in 18, 18 miles from the cabin in Nova Scotia, and they would come in and they would hire uh, shuckers uh, and pay twenty dollars a bucket to shuck. So I would do that too. So, you know. I could make a hundred hours a day doing that too, if I needed to. Wow. Very interesting. Well, we're talking to Mickey McGuire, the author of Feather White. We'll be right back. Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical fiction imprint. Among our titles, works by Kareem El Kusa, such as The Kabbalistic Visions and Phoenician Code. Chris Fenwick's The 100th Human, and Michelle Willard Hoffer's The ABCs of Narcissism, Soaring Past Toxic Partners. Find these and other intriguing works at the Ars Metaphysica tab and all works of nonfiction and fiction at sunburypress.com. Welcome back to the Sunbury Press Book Show. We're talking to Mickey McGuire, the author of Feather White. Uh, Mickey, that title, Feather White, you know, when I first saw it, I thought, what is this, the My Pillow guy? Uh, what's going on here? And then I saw, you know, it's about ships and the oceans. So Feather White's probably not a very good thing to see when you're on a boat, right? Right. It is not. And uh, I learned this. Uh, we were out on a trip. We were caught in a, nor- a nor'easter. I was down in the forecastle. That's the, the cruise quarters on an eastern rig boat. The, the forecastle is forward. The galley is also there as well in the same the same compartment. And uh, one of the crew members came down in full oil gear, having just been smashed in the face by seas. And uh, he says, man, it's feather white out there. And I'm like, 
what does that mean? But I kind of learned not to ask a lot of questions on the boat because every time you ask a question, it's like saying, I'm green, I'm green. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I went topside myself, I saw what he meant. Uh, During a storm, uh, the seabirds often will be on the wing. I think they probably find being on the wing uh, easier on them than trying to survive floating around in a turbulent sea. But as they're flying in the air, their white breasts are indistinguishable from the white of the sheared off uh, white caps. So all you see is uh, sea color and white, white, white. And some of it is the, the white caps and some of it is the white of the white feathered breasts of seabirds. So if they're saying it's feather white out there, uh, it's very, very turbulent. Yeah, I, I know. Anybody who's curious, just look at a picture of the book cover. And uh, that's what we used a scene um, that shows that. Yeah. So, and I'm also thinking, you know, from the generation I grew up in, you know, the scene of the minnow being tossed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can only imagine being on a fishing boat. It, it's probably even worse than that. And uh, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes back to uh, you know, you're you're a greenhorn with this crew, and you're being tossed around. What was that like? Well, it it was uh, very intimidating. And uh, if the thing about when you go out on a fishing boat on an eight or nine or 10 day trip, uh, if you have second thoughts about it, uh, if once they throw the lines, those those second thoughts, uh, you got to throw them overboard, too, because you're stuck. So um, there were a number of times, especially on that first trip where I thought, you know, geez, maybe I made a mistake doing this because, oh, my God. Because I, I knew I knew nothing about anything. So it's not like I wasn't willing to work. In fact, the captain who hired me knew me from Nova Scotia and had been in my log cabin. So he's he's obviously realizes, well, here's this 20-year-old kid who built a log cabin. He's not afraid of a little work. But willingness to work and being able to apply that to the actual job at hand are two different things. So you have to learn before you can actually pull your weight. So it's a while before you're you're pulling your weight. And while you're not pulling your weight, everybody resents you because you're taking money out of their hands. Uh, and if you ask them a question, that's even more annoying because not only are you taking money out of my hands, but now I got to explain every damn thing to you. You know, so uh, it's very difficult. And uh, I think I wrote in my book that most people thought I was the quiet type and people who know me laugh at that. <laughs> Uh, but I, I had to learn that skill just to survive. And, uh, there was one thing that I was able to do from that first trip on, and that was attack the pile. As I mentioned, you know, the, the dredges would, would drop all their contents on deck. Now, if you're down in the, the great round shoal, part of the Nantucket shoals, you're just hauling up nothing but rocks. And, uh, so I, I knew how to attack a pile of rocks and how to throw them over the side. And I worked at an incredibly and an insane pace. Uh, and I thought most people thought that that was unsustainable, but I did it. And uh, at least I showed them that I wasn't afraid of a little work. Uh, and then, of course, as, as I got to do it longer and longer, uh, I knew more and more. And then probably by the following summer, uh, I was not a greenhorn anymore, but, but incidentally, I thought I would like to mention that very first trip, uh, we got caught in a gale and we lost our steering. When you lose your steering in a gale, uh, you can no longer head into the seas or quarter them. 
uh, you lay broadside, yeah. and then the boat takes a pounding because each sea hits the side uh, of the boat, hits it at a midships, and it starts this insane rolling back and forth, back and forth until perhaps she capsizes. So my very first trip out, this is what happened, and we almost we almost sunk on my first trip. <laughs> wow, I'm <laughs> laughing, that but that's did, not funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we wound up in Nantucket. We had to stay there for three days until the storm blew over. So even if I had second thoughts after having almost died on the boat on my first trip, I was stuck on an island and I couldn't go anywhere anyway. And then, of course, after the three days, we threw the lines and went right back out again. And I wound so, up sticking with it. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, you know, you say you're, you were you lost your steering at sea. How did you manage to get back? Well, what had happened was uh, the steering cable goes through uh, uh, sheathing along the sides, along the starboard and the port side, uh, all the way back to what they call the uh, quadrant, which is the rudder, uh, basically. And uh, one of the sheathings let go on the port side, which uh, created all this slack in the cable, and thereby uh, the boat was unable to steer. So how they fixed it was... uh, the engineer came out with what they called C clamps. And I thought, I thought they were C clamps as an SEA, like you're at C and you, so you use uh-huh. C clamps, but no, 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 it's the letter C it's a C clamp. Right. And the bottom part of the C is adjustable like a vice. Okay. So what he, what the captain did, and I, I don't know why, but I, I went right down into the middle of this as a greenhorn and I just held a flashlight so that the captain could see what he was doing. I didn't know anything, but I sure as heck knew how to hold a flashlight. And so he was able to secure that sheathing to, and put enough uh, tension on the metal cable that we restored our steering. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good you got back and didn't capsize. That would have been a, a terrible right. first voyage. Yeah, that would have been bad. <laughs> so, so you went right back out there then the next year? Yeah, well, we went. Yeah, we were we were stuck in Nantucket for for three days, and then we went right back out and finished the trip. And then I did several trips until finally uh, the boat had a lot of problems and had to go up on what they call the railway, mm-hmm. which is where you know it's a it's a uh, there's a like a railroad track in the boatyard and a mechanism called a cradle. You come over to that at high tide, and the boat settles down in the cradle, and then they haul it up out of the water. So I wound up working on. Uh, that boat for uh, maybe a month or two uh, while she was up on the railway. Well, what I mean is this was your your personal first voyage, and yet you get back on a couple months later and go back out. So you obviously weren't scared away from from doing this no, work. No, I, 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 I think I mentioned in my book, uh, I think in my prologue, that I was live, the way I lived my life back then, uh, was my response to watching my dad destroy himself with alcohol. So my, what happened to him was extreme and my reaction was extreme. So I, I would, uh, do what I call, uh, a spirited tap dance on the thin ice of life whenever I had a chance. So I would do all kinds of dangerous things because they made me feel a lot more alive. They made me feel like, uh, you know, I was, somehow making my mark or finding what I was looking for. So um, I would just do all these outrageous things, just seek them out. Uh, Thank God I got over that. 
uh, because I'm, I lived to, I didn't think I was going to make it to 30 because of that. But, mm-hmm. uh, by then, uh, I kind of calmed down and I wound up in psychiatric social work, uh, and did a whole career in that. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Going back to the boats, uh, when were you no longer a greenhorn? Was there a moment when the crew accepted you or yes. you felt like a part of the crew? Yes. I, uh, in fact, I, I, I mentioned that in the book uh, quite specifically. There was a moment. It was in the middle of the summer the following year, summer of 78. I was on the Bay of Isles. And uh, we, we had rope tackle on that boat. A lot, all the boats now have metal uh, cable for the tackle for, you know, it's, it's something that you use to, to hook onto the dredge and lift the heavy dredges up off the deck and dump them. You know, they, they carry quite a bit of weight. Uh, but, uh, the boat I was on had a, a rope tackle, but you have to change that every so often because rope has a living, a limited, uh, shelf life. It gets dried out, uh, being exposed to sun and salt water and tension. Uh, so, uh, we were, doing what they call end for ending the tackle in New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, which is basically uh, replacing the whole circuit of uh, rope with new rope. And uh, we had cut, uh, we, we actually called it the tail on the boat instead of the tackle. Uh, they cut the tail knot, which is the very bitter end of the rope where it ties onto the hook. And well, that's gotta be a really good knot. And, uh, one of one of the more famous fishermen in Provincetown, his name was Richard Dickey, and I I did uh, quite an homage to to Richard in my book. Uh, I was I was his hookup man for that summer, and I watched him tie this knot. So Richard left the boat in early August, and here we were having to tie two tail knots, and nobody on the boat, even though there were some really uh, experienced fishermen, didn't quite know how to tie the tail knot and i was at the back of the crowd the 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 blocks were sitting on the hatch cover like it was an operating table and uh i was in the back of the crowd and everybody said well how did how did how did dicky tie because he was the one who tied the last nuts and from the back of the crowd i said i i remember i watched him and they all turned around and looked at me like this skinny long-haired kid from new jersey knows how to tie the tail knot, but they parted like the Red Sea. And I walked up to the, to the hatch cover and it reminded me of the moment when young, young Arthur is removing Excalibur from the stone because there was this, this silence and reverence going on there. And I went up. Did a light shine down from heaven at that moment? Was there music in the background? (laughs) Angels flying about? Yeah, there was a chorus going, you know. He's about to uh, tie the knot. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I tied them and, and uh, the first mate, his name was Joe Lisbon. He looked at it and he said, that's it. Good. Turned around and went back into the wheelhouse. You know, it translates into really high praise. And if this was was high praise. And And so I knew from then on that I was no longer a greenhorn. Yeah. Because I was pulling my weight on deck. My shucking was a lot better. And now I knew stuff about gear that a greenhorn would never know. I was going to say, Mickey, if this was a musical at that point, they would have broke out into song and dance. <laughs> hey, uh, I have to ask you, how, how has the book been received? We only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask well, you about I, the book. I, it's been very humbling because everyone who reads this book um, tells me how moving it was. Uh, 
see, it's a lot of different things. It's, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, like I can't, uh, I can't separate my humor from anything that I do. So there's ample doses of my humor. So a lot of people are telling me, Oh my God, I laughed through the whole thing. There were, there are, I'm hearing from people who come from uh, addictive families who say, Oh gosh, what you wrote made me think about what, what I grew up with. And it really meant so much to me. Thank you. I'm getting, uh, responses from the fishing community of Provincetown. And this is the one I was most concerned about because I, I didn't want to be this guy who proposes to be this know-it-all about fishing. I'm not. I was an interloper. I just broke in and did it for like three and a half years or so, a very brief time. These guys who do this for a living, they are the masters and I had nothing but respect for them. And I didn't want to come across in the book as some kind of know-it-all. And the response I'm getting from the fishing community is really wonderful. They've been very supportive. They've been thankful. A number of these people, there were some people who have uh, gone to their graves as fishermen and family members have said, look, I really appreciate what you wrote. Uh, uh, so it's it's been very well received by them. Uh, so I, I'm very excited about the way people are reacting to it. I think the biggest thing that people say to me is that, it's very conversational in tone. And some people who've known me since I was a little kid say, I feel like you're in the room with me just mm -hmm. talking. And I feel like I've really accomplished something if I can have somebody say that about my writing, because that's really all I wanted it to be. You know, I, it makes me feel good, too, Mickey, as your editor, because that means I didn't change it so much to lose that voice so that they still hear you through your writing. So. Uh, but that's awesome that your first book um, comes out and is that well-received. I know when we get feedback, people call, they order it. There's always somebody that's got a story. I knew Mickey, or I knew Mickey then, or I knew <laughs> Mickey when, or he's a great guy. That's great. So there's, that's, we get all these little great. editorial well, you, comments. There's like no no, no quiet, uh, unannounced purchase of your book. It's always like uh, something about knowing you. Well, you know, you, know, you said – uh, you said, you know, uh, for your first book, it's like, actually, I've been walking around with this book in, in my head and in my heart since it happened, because it's based on my journals. And at the time, I felt like my life was like walking across the pages of a novel. And of course, I was a self-absorbed youth as well. So I kept copious journal, journal notes throughout all this time, knowing that at some point I was going to write it all down and make and make a book out of it. So this book, even though it took probably uh, eight years from the time I actually started writing it to the time that you sent me uh, that glorious copy in full print, that was an eight-year project. But really, I've been working on this since the day I, I started building the cabin and, and beyond. Mickey, we, we do have to wrap up. Uh, what are yep. you working on now? Is there anything you're, well, you're writing? Well, a lot of people are saying to me, oh, I read your memoir, but it ends when you're 26. And there's been a lot that's uh, been going on since then. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was an actor in New York for a while. I got into the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, I've been a musician all my life. I wound up taking up the banjo. I studied with banjo master Tony Trishka. I, I toured with James Reams and the Barnstormers for about seven years and uh, New Jersey String Fever as a banjo player, uh, and uh, just a lot of different things. But what happened was I, I stumbled into uh, social work, and that's really what saved me because I 
I had no idea how I was going to fit in. I felt like uh, there was no place for me, you know, because I lived I lived a really good, simple life in Nova Scotia. And anything that came after that didn't seem to make any sense. Mm -hmm. But I wound up in a life of service with people with histories of mental illness and homelessness. I wound up working for Franciscan Friars in New York, providing permanent housing for this population. And this is what made me realize why I was here on this earth was to communicate and to connect and to help people. Uh, so my next project is going to be a continuation of the memoir. And the goal here is to somehow capture the magic dust of what a life of service uh, did for me because it really gave me my whole purpose in life. Otherwise, I don't, again, I don't know what would have happened to me if had I not, discovered social work. Nikki, it's been great talking to you. Hope to have you back when that, that extension of your memoir is completed. Thank you, Lawrence. And thanks so much for publishing this memoir. It means so much to me. So thank you for that. All right. We've been talking to Mickey McGuire, the author of Feather White, a 1970s memoir, commercial fishing out of Provincetown and the backwoods counterculture movement in Nova Scotia. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.